For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a report on the broken sewer line in Nogales that threatened the Santa Cruz River. Learn how a project to return lost dog tags from the Vietnam War is bringing together two generations of veterans. Chris DeShiel looks back at a modernized 1962 Western starring Kirk Douglas that was based on a novel by Edward Abbey. And we'll explore Abbey's legacy in a conversation with Sean Prentice, the author of Finding Abbey. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. A potential health and environmental disaster was narrowly averted earlier this week near the Arizona-Sonora border. A sewer line pipe broke and threatened to contaminate the Santa Cruz River. An 18,000-foot bypass has been trenched with new pipe. So far, that bypass appears to be holding. Nancy Montoya visited Nogales and explains what happened and why the danger is not over. The Santa Cruz River. It's the only river in the U.S. to cross an international border twice. It starts in southeastern Arizona, flows south into Mexico, makes a U-turn and comes back into the U.S. at Nogales. That's an important fact to remember later on in this story. It's a lifeline. Congressman Raul Grijalva. This has been for uh, some time immemorial. It continues to be a lifeline. It's a connector between us and Mexico, and it's a connector all the way to the Gila River. This source, not only of water, but of groundwater for all the region, uh, cannot be jeopardized. But it was jeopardized a week and a half ago when a sewer line break spewed millions of gallons of raw sewage and wastewater into the Nogales Wash that leads into the Santa Cruz. The one who actually saw it, right? Right. Well, we were doing an inspection. We went up. Heavy monsoon rains sent Lee Jacobs, the utility director for the city of Nogales, to inspect the pipeline looking for damage. Tell me what you saw when you came up on it. So, initially, when we came up on it, we noticed that the manhole looked like it had been tilted. Then we did a dye test and then we confirmed it. From here, it flows down the Potrero and then it's the confluence, it hits the Santa Cruz. Jacob adds that leaks along the pipeline that carry sewage from both sides of the border nine miles to the Rio Rico Treatment Center happen almost every year. The leaks are getting worse, he says, and more often. When it starts to rain, this this is, this is a... This is what happens, the monsoons, yeah. This, this particular monsoon has been really, really... We've had a lot of rain, I think, over more than average. Now, in 1944, the U.S. and Mexico entered into a water treaty. In 1967, it was amended to include an agreement that sewage from Nogales, Sonora, would be piped across the border and treated in the U.S. In the early 1970s, the treatment plant was moved nine miles away to Rio Rico. Back then, there were only around 60,000 people between Nogales on the Mexican side and Nogales on the U.S. side. But now, Nogales Sonora's population has exploded to almost a half a million people. That sewer pipeline, says Congressman Grijalva, that was laid in the 1970s is old, inefficient, and needs to be replaced. Or else, he says, these breaches will continue, and the threat to the Santa Cruz River will increase. 
I've always believed this is a federal responsibility. Much of what we're seeing is it's a, as a consequence of a treaty, an international treaty. The treaty said we would treat the sewage of Nogales when both Nogales were the same size. Well, that's over now. Replacing the nine-mile pipeline is estimated to cost around $40 million. Now, you might be asking, why should the U.S. pay to have sewage from Mexico treated? Well, it comes back to what I told you at the beginning of this story. The Santa Cruz River runs from the U.S. to Mexico and back again. The sewage water we get from Mexico goes through our treatment plant and released back into the Santa Cruz River at a point where it stays in Arizona. And as Congressman Grijalva says, that water is a lifeline to many parts of southern Arizona. So this isn't just a border Nogales issue? No. It goes, you know, we're testing water in Casa Grande. We're testing water in Saguarito. We're test, Pima County's testing water in, in uh, Tucson, in, in Pima County. That's the biggest environmental uh, threat that we have right now. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. Many important things can be lost and found because of war. Next, Gisela Tellis reports on a special program that is helping University of Arizona student veterans connect with a past generation of service members. I didn't know if we were going to find anybody, and it was within three days we got an email from him. And he was excited, and he wanted it back, and so that was definitely the coolest part. They said that they would love to have their dog tag back, so we pulled it from our collection. <laughs> for months, Anna Williams and Duan Copeland have been waiting for this moment, the day they get to ship out a dog tag to the veteran who lost it. It's been 10 years since he was last Contact. contacted yeah. by the top program. They're both so, veterans and so University of Arizona students, as well as members of the UA Veterans Education and Transition Services, or VETS, program. So I was an Army veteran. I served four and a half years. I was an aviation operations specialist, so flight plans, flight records. I had 12 years in the Army Reserves. Four years of that were on active duty. I was a medical laboratory technician, mostly doing blood drives in support of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. As the former lead psychologist of the Southern Arizona VA healthcare system and the current director of the UA Supportive Education for Returning Veterans, or SURF, program, Dr. Michael Marks has spent his career working with veterans and the issues they face. In the military, service becomes a core value. And then all of a sudden you're back in the civilian world and people don't really, as a society, we don't really think about service very much. So they go from this place where it's really, really important to me. So we find that one of the things that helps student veterans adjust to college and be involved in, in college life is to do these service projects. And so we have a number of them, uh, one of which is the TOPS program. TOP, or Tours of Peace, started in 1998 as a nonprofit dedicated to helping Vietnam veterans. 
One element of TOP's mission was returning dog tags and other personal effects to veterans and their families. When the nonprofit dissolved last year, it found a new home in the VETS program. Doc and I over the winter did some emailing back and forth, and there's a for public release list of individuals. That's how Anna, Duan, and six other student veterans became the stewards of more than 2,000 personal effects recovered in Vietnam in the decades since the Vietnam War. Initially, it was just sorting out and figuring out what we had. That involved us uh, making sure all the files were accurate, uh, going through and seeing if addresses were up to date, and then resending out letters so that we can return the dog tags to the veteran or their family members. The people that had already been contacted had been more than 10 years. And so we wanted to just reach out again and, you know, hopefully get somebody. We've used Ancestry.com, we've used Google searches, Facebook. So then the next step is to really the research part of people who haven't been found yet. And that's going to be next semester's project. The project's future is uncertain. There aren't many resources to keep it going. But the student veterans who've taken this on know better than most that these dog tags represent whole lives. People who were killed in the Vietnam War or whose lives were forever changed by it. That knowledge compels them to keep trying. All the adult men that I grew up with were Vietnam veterans. My dad is, my step-uncle, and their friends were all Vietnam veterans. I feel a connection through that and kind of doing it for them. When they came home, they were treated horribly. My dad especially, like he doesn't, he doesn't talk about it. They had a hard time with it, with how they were treated coming back. And it's not that they talked about it all the time, but you could tell that there was definitely hard feelings. And, uh, you know, just letting them know that we were thankful for them and giving them the respect that they deserved. For Dr. Michael Marks, the project is one more way he can serve those who served. These aren't just little pieces of metal. They're important, certainly important to me. About 40 years ago, I met with um, 50 Vietnam veterans this before PTSD was a thing. It was called delayed stress back then. And so I put on a workshop in Western Montana where I practiced at the time. And I explained to them what I knew. This thing's called delayed stress. You're not crazy. This is what happens to people that have gone through what you've gone through. So at the end of the day, they, they said, would you be willing to go to war with us and for us? And I mean, what the hell do you say to 50 guys that say that? So this project for me is fulfilling a promise. That's my passion about this. I honor my promise to those guys. I'm Gisela Tellis for Arizona Spotlight.
In December of 2016, actor, author, and producer Kirk Douglas, a true legend from the golden age of Hollywood, turned 100 years old. His more than 90 film career spanned seven decades. This included an era when the top box office stars could get a film they believed in made with a handshake deal. Next, film writer Krista Scheel will tell us about a rarely talked about movie that Kirk Douglas championed, one that has strong roots in the Southwest. The 1962 film Lonely Are the Brave declares its theme in the very first sequence without using any words. A cowboy is taking a nap on the open range, his hat over his eyes, his horse standing nearby. He awakens, pulls his hat off, and looks up. A jet has just flown overhead. We've been pulled out of a scene that could be from any typical Western and into the late 20th century. Here, right away, is the contrast between the ideal of rugged individualism and freedom represented by the Old West and the reality of modern life with all its impersonal noise and technology. The cowboy is named Jack Burns, played by Kirk Douglas. Burns has no driver's license or social security card. He refuses to be tracked or categorized. Up until now, he's gotten by on various short-time jobs, and he's always on the move. Now he's going into a southwestern city to help an old friend get out of jail. He purposely gets into a bar fight so as to be arrested and sent to the same jail. But then he finds that breaking out isn't as easy as he expected. Now wait till we get one of those bars cut, then decide. Long time between now and sunup, you might change your mind. Not a chance. But I'm sure going to change yours. You were in a bar fight. You'll get 30 days at the most. You want to risk five years in the penitentiary for that? Not 30 days, amigo. I get a year. A year? I hit a deputy. They charged me with criminal assault. Criminal assault? How did you I happen had to hit to. They wouldn't let me in. Lonely Are the Brave happened because Kirk Douglas read a novel by Edward Abbey called The Brave Cowboy and decided he wanted to make a movie out of it. David Miller, a veteran journeyman at various studios, was chosen to direct, and Dalton Trumbo was brought in to adapt the book into a screenplay. Trumbo was famously one of the writers blacklisted for not cooperating with the anti-communist congressional hearings on Hollywood during the Cold War. Douglas had helped him break the blacklist a couple years earlier when they did the film Spartacus. Trumbo brought his leftist sensibility to the film. The combination of talent clicked, Lonely Are the Brave is a smart, low-key drama of American rebellion. Miller's style has a refreshing clarity and directness. Trumbo's screenplay is pungent and occasionally quite funny. There are some really good character actors on hand as well, including Jenna Rollins, George Kennedy, and Walter Matthau as a weary sheriff who isn't very enthusiastic about having to chase down the escaped Jack Burns, for whom he obviously has sympathy. Uh, John W. Burns, Socorro, New Mexico. He's born 1919, Joplin, Missouri. He served seven months in the U.S. Army Disciplinary Training Center at Incheon, South Korea, for striking a superior officer, February 22, 1951. February 22nd. He was just celebrating Washington's birthday, that's all. Uh, wounded in action, November 4th, 1951. Election day. Purple Heart, Distinguished Service Cross with Oak Leaves, discharged at Fort Dix, New Jersey, February 14th, 1952. Valentine's Day. <laughs> but it's all really a showcase for Kirk Douglas, who's excellent here. 
more relaxed and natural than in any other film of his I can think of. In fact, he says it's his favorite among his own movies. It was filmed all around Albuquerque. The first scene is on the far west edge of the city, with the mountains nicknamed the Three Sisters visible in the background. The long, impressive chase sequence in the film's second half was shot mostly in the Sandias, the big mountain range to the east of town. The picture is in black and white, which gives it a suitably old-time feel. And it's interesting to compare the book with the film. In the book, Jack's friend Paul is arrested because he refused to register for the draft. For Abby, this wasn't an anti-war thing, but an objection to the idea of a compulsory registration in peacetime. Well, in 1962, Vietnam had not yet escalated, and this was not an issue that any movie studio would want to touch. So in the film, Paul has been arrested for giving shelter to undocumented Mexican immigrants. Now that's certainly a surprising little detail that resonates with us today. There are a few other differences between book and film, mostly in the way that Abby makes explicit political statements, whereas the movie, as one would expect, shies away from that. Notice how many fences are getting to be? The signs they get on them. No hunting, no hiking, no admission, no trespass, private property, closed area. Start moving, get lost, drop dead, go away. The late Edward Abbey was, of course, a well-known and generally beloved figure in Tucson, where he lived and taught for many years. He's often identified with environmentalism, but he represents a kind of libertarian branch of that movement. Lonely Are the Brave reflects his protest against encroachment by government and corporations on the wilderness. Set against it is the idea of the self-sufficient hero living a life of freedom on the range. The history of the West is far more complicated than that. One has to wonder about the freedom of the original inhabitants of the land, for instance, and where that fits into this myth. But it seems to me that the cowboy trying to escape the metropolis is more of a spiritual symbol than an historical one. Kirk Douglas and his horse stir something in us that still wants to connect to nature and to live free of complications. Against the stark beauty and quiet of the landscape, the film brilliantly sets the annoying and nerve-wracking sounds of trucks and factories, police cars, and helicopters. With all its energy and humor, Lonely Other Brave is ultimately a film of loss, an elegy on the death of a dream. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Shield. The words of Edward Abbey have spread far from his beloved Southwest Desert. Since his death in Tucson in 1989, he was age 62. The legend says that Abbey asked his closest friends to take him from his deathbed to an undisclosed place in the Sonoran Desert and bury him in his sleeping bag. That story loomed large over author and creative writing professor Sean Prentice, who went on a personal quest to follow in Edward Abbey's footsteps and retrace his path across Arizona and New Mexico during the time when he wrote his most famous books, including The Monkey Wrench Gang and Desert Solitaire. Prentice's nonfiction account of that journey and what it taught him about Abbey, the Southwest, and himself is called Finding Abbey. So I've been to Tucson a few times. Both times it was to go visit the special collections library that you have, and you all have a beautiful, beautiful collection. I would go there and take out the different Abbey boxes, and you'd open up these boxes, and it might have letters from his kids, or it might have his journals, or it might have 
the original Desert Solitaire with, you know, corrections and edits on it. You're dealing with this really fine paper and you're, you know, looking at these words that, you know, I've read 30, I guess 25 years ago, words that, you know, led me to becoming or wanting to become a desert rat and wanting to become a writer. I got to read his thesis on anarchism and violence. I got to read an unpublished novel of his called City of Dreadful Night, which is uh, unpublished for a pretty good reason. It's not the best book he has or anywhere close to it. But uh, going to Tucson has been great. Just get to wander through the the, the landscape that Abby lived in and died in and, and see how it changed and just see how Tucson, just like most cities in America, are just growing and growing and growing and swallowing up their landscape around them. Let's talk about the legend of Abby's passing and his burial. Uh, for those who've never heard the story before, how would you tell it? In 1989, Abby turned uh, 62, and he had been sick with esophageal varices, which is, think of like varicose veins, but think of those in your esophagus. So your veins are really close to the, the inside of your esophagus. So he was having these bleeds, these internal bleeds. And he went to the hospital in Tucson, and they, they tried to fix them all up. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't work, and he was still bleeding. So he got stolen out of the hospital by his best friend, Jack Loeffler, and he, he went out into a, uh, an area outside of Tucson to try to die, and that didn't work. So he then retreated back to his writing cabin where he did die. Then two of his friends and two of his in-laws drove him out into a desert outside of Tucson, and they dug a, a hole and they illegally buried him. And that's kind of the, the mystery or, or telling of, of his death story. It can, I could talk about it for the next half hour, but that's the short condensed version. In chapter 23 of your book, you put together a list of some of the pointers or possible details that we may or may not know about where Edward Abbey is buried. Um, these include on a hillside, in a place where Abbey would be able to see no roads, near a volcanic cap rock, near a Palo Verde tree, near basalt boulders, and facing west. I love those details. There are a few more, but if Edward Abbey didn't want anyone to know where he was buried, then how do you justify the title and the quest of your book, Finding Abbey? First off, early in the process, my best friend House, he and I talked about the finding of the grave. And the first thing we realized was that if finding the grave mattered to the book, then the book was not very well written. So this book is titled Finding Abbey because really what I'm after is finding out who Edward Abbey was. And the reason I care about that is because I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. Should I live in the city where I was working in Grand Rapids, Michigan, or should I quit my job and move back to the mountains? So the real quest is a search for understanding. It's a search for talking with a ghost mentor. So the search for the grave is really just an avenue to get to learn about who Edward Abbey was and what he might offer as advice. Now, that said, even though I say it's just an avenue for that, if, if you start a quest, I think you have to invest in it. So when I go searching for the grave, I, I do it genuinely. The driving impulse is to reflect on my own life by looking at this ghost mentor I have. I also, you know, respect and understand that some people might not love that I go looking for the grave. Luckily, 
Abby's closest friends were very supportive of the project. I had a chance later to uh, meet his final wife, Clark, and, and she was nothing but wonderful. So I was, I was trying to be very respectful to the family, to the friends, to the spirit of Edward Abbey. Uh, and hopefully I did that. I'm sure some people would be disappointed, but hopefully most uh, see what I was doing and enjoy the process. <laughs> well, you did get access to, as you mentioned, four or five of the people who are closest to Edward Abbey in the final decades of his life. So pick one of Edward Abbey's friends and tell us about meeting them. I could spend all day talking just about the the friends of Abbey's. They were spectacular people. But my first interview, I remember being terrified. Here I am going to meet one of these iconic men of the West, one of these great friends of Edward Abbey. And uh, you meet Jack Loeffler, and he's a big, stout, powerful man. But he, he invited me in the house, and this man was filled with laughter. And we just ended up talking and laughing, and, and he would reminisce for two or three hours. But my favorite thing he talked about, and it's something in the book, is this idea of, of Edward Abbey on one hand being this spectacular environmental thinker, spectacular writer, but also him being at times pretty lousy uh, in, in marriage, being potentially racist, uh, saying some, some things that maybe I wouldn't agree with. And I, I asked Jack about that. And Jack brought up this idea of, quote, conflicting absolutes. It allows us to see how Abby can be both great and questionable in the same exact instance. Loeffler brought up this example where Abby did not love illegal immigrants coming in from Mexico. And he also did not like uranium mines. But yet when Hispanic workers in southern Arizona were trying to fight against the uranium mines, he very actively supported them and donated money to them because he realized that you know, he might not like uh, immigrants coming over from Mexico and he might not like uranium miners, but these are workers being exploited. So I, I just loved Loeffler talking about that idea of those conflicting absolutes of, of Edward Abbey and, and of all of us. Tell us about something else that changed your perspective on Edward Abbey that you discovered as you retraced his steps through the Southwest. One of the things is the loyalty of his friends. Every single one of the people I talked with were just amazingly loyal. And they protected Abby. They wanted to protect uh, how we view him today. And they all deeply, deeply love a man who died in 1989. Uh, Doug Peacock and Ken Slight and David Peterson and Jack Loeffler were just so deeply connected with Abby, with his ideas, with his writing, but really with just him as a human, that that was one of the things that really helped me see him not as a famous writer, but as just a genuine friend. And it made me recognize that whatever he had done specifically, he had made friends for life, and those friends were willing to defend him forever. Sean Prentice wrote Finding Abby, published in 2015 by the University of New Mexico Press. You can read an excerpt on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm host and producer Mark McLemore.